have uh, Brian Solis with, with us here today. Thanks for doing this, Brian. It's my pleasure. Hello, everybody. As you know, this uh, weekly webcast is devoted to keeping you up to date on what's happening in tech. Well, this is a way to find out, you know, from people who aren't sales reps trying to sell you something. Let's let's jump into this. We're just going to go 45 minutes today. Brian, I mean, we've, we've been friends for 20 years. Uh, you know, I've watched <laughs> you achieve so much in your career. Uh, most recently, you know, 8.5 years at, uh, at Altimeter uh, with Charlene Lee, which you recently left. So, Tell us why you decided to leave Altimeter. Well, it's not it's not an easy decision when you're partners with somebody like Charlene Lee. <laughs> and also, uh, I got the, the chance to spend um, many years working with Susan Etlinger as well, who's just a phenomenon in her own right. Uh, the reason I moved on is I have a lot of things that I want to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've known each other for 20 years, so it's not like I'm getting younger uh, and I, I needed to pursue some of them, get them out of my system, and then settle down and focus on you know a few key things over time. And my my last my last year has been spent really looking at, you know, ironically, as an analyst studying how disruptive technology impacts markets, uh, but also as a digital anthropologist uh, to find myself disrupted by that technology, uh, personally and professionally, uh, my focus, my creativity. You know, I, I spent the last year really focusing on how do I want to live my life in a world of constant distraction without giving this thing up or giving up all of the devices and technologies that actually can also benefit us. So coming out of that experience uh, was a book, uh, which uh, I hope you read. It's called Life Scale. Uh, but also was a new mental mindset, a new emotional mindset to say, if I'm going to live my life m with much more purpose and intention uh, to be more present in key moments, then what are those moments going to be? And I've now decided to get a little bit more back into technology, a little bit more uh, towards the left side of the bell curve of disruption and adoption. Uh, to focus on that research that helps businesses make decisions about innovation and digital transformation uh, and also maybe influence those technology disruptors through my work to have a, a, a more positive market and also user impact. So, you know, I'm thinking back, you know, when when um, social media first appeared and, uh, you know, we were really excited about it. And we were kind of cheerleaders. You know, we celebrated it as sort of this democratizing force. And I don't think any of us predicted that, you know, social news feeds would wind up using these algorithms that would insulate us from opposing viewpoints as a way of sustaining our attention to be sold to advertisers and essentially stoke political division. Or, or I mean, I certainly never predicted that evil geniuses would create these troll farms that would game the system. Um, so, so I guess, you know, now we're on sort of the precipice, the, 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 the top of the hype cycle with respect to artificial intelligence. Should we be a bit more skeptical this time? Do you mean in terms of the, the technology itself or in terms of the ultimate experience as a result of it? In terms of how this technology affects our lives. I mean, mm. you, you started off by saying um, constant distractions had sort of left you feeling sort of empty and looking for how you were going to balance a, a life with purpose and intention against, you know, having access to constant 
information streams. So I guess if you look, if we put that aside for a minute, because I do want to talk about that as well, but let's start with artificial intelligence because everyone's so interested in it. Should we be scared? I mean, have is what we've seen from social media and what its impact has been on mental health and, you know, political tolerance, just really, uh, you know, a sideshow for what we should expect from AI. <laughs> just such a, such a deep question, man. And I, it, we, we, we hey, almost need do, like, a you knew this wasn't going to be light, man. You knew it. <laughs> it's like almost like a conference dedicated to this whole subject. Uh, all right, let me let me just kind of break it break it down a little bit. There's a couple of things that are happening before I want to get into AI, and one is sort of personal uh, personal accountability, and the other one is literacy. The challenge and the reason why these current algorithms are so effective, and let's keep in mind that they are powered by, in many ways, machine learning, which is a subset of sort of the AI as we as we think about it. Uh, this is already in play right now, and, and essentially how they work is that they are, for better or for worse, aligning content and also advertising around what those algorithms believe to be uh, as important to us, right? And the reason why they're important to us is because they stoke and they plug it directly into, one, our cognitive biases, uh, two, our said or unsaid weaknesses uh, or vulnerabilities is probably a better way to put it. Uh, and three, they create engagement and activity around those two things because they're incredibly emotional and they're charged. And so the more that you're engaging with that, the more you're sharing and the more you're sharing, you're getting, <laughs> you're getting people to share back with you. And that's all data. Uh, and and that data is is and also time and that data is so valuable. So we should actually be scared right now that that's how this works. Is that essentially our own biases and vulnerabilities are working against us, but they make us feel like we're actually much more in control, that we're actually much more confident, uh, and and that our strengths are are actually great. Um, so that's that's part of the psychological warfare in many ways that's happening behind the scenes, and that's that's by design. That's all kinds of things, persuasive design, intermittent variable rewards, a lot of the stuff that we don't know about, which is why, say, literacy and accountability are really important before we get into the AI discussion, because right now uh, we should be scared at the way things are, uh, because essentially we are, I hate to say it this way, but we are being manipulated uh, in a way that benefits investors and shareholders and, and CEOs and what have you. With accountability, though, gives us the ability to say, hey, the other day I posted on Facebook, I don't have to engage in all of this stuff. I don't have to follow all of these people that I don't agree with, but I do have to have a much more open mind. I do have to put out into the Facebook universe what I want to get back from the Facebook universe. If I want to be more positive and creative and thoughtful and kind of stoke all of the things that I feel like where I want to grow, then I can absolutely have that experience I just have to then retrain the algorithms in the system to give me that experience back. So that's an intentional conscious decision about where I want to go with the platform. Then I'll let AI and machine learning sort of adapt around me and, and you know, it, we'll see how that's going, but so far so good. So the other bit is literacy. It's really hard to tell someone, Hey, uh, 
you're actually buying into a system that is using this against you. So for profit, I mean, literally for profit. So literacy kind of gives us the ability to understand our relationship with the platforms and the information that we share and the information that we get back to understand how these things work. Uh, to get there, we have to be a little bit more uh, empathetic, but also open-minded to see that maybe we were also part of the problem as well. And that that's, with literacy comes a sense of sort of digital maturity that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something where I had to go through. And, and the only reason I went through that is because I hit a wall. Uh, but also I'm learning now how to bring people into that conversation in ways that they feel not threatened uh, or not attacked, but that someone understands, Hey, maybe we can all get to a better place together. Cause certainly the path that we're on right now does not end well. Uh, and then from there, AI, AI is just simply, tools that take from those patterns uh, and learns how to perform against them in ways that resemble intelligence, hence the name artificial intelligence. Uh, So they can be programmed in ways that are really beneficial, that stoke positively our biases uh, and, and, and our strengths rather than preying on our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So in, but here's the, here's the trick to the question. Uh, can those things be used in those ways? Absolutely, and they will. So I, I, I think of education for our children as being one of the, one of the most exciting ways. Uh, but we do see, uh, whether we want to call them actors or just generally bad guys uh, and gals, th- this, this, this will be used against us. Uh, I can tell you that there's a, a certain founder in, in, uh, in the tech scene that's talking about how they're using AI uh, to better understand uh, neuro algorithms to his words, not mine to juice us more to take us to that next level of engagement and immersion where this becomes just all the worse. Right. And then you add to it, the deep fakes, the, you know, the fake videos, the fake audios that are coming from the same result of the technology. There's a lot to be scared about. Uh, but I think the more that we can educate ourselves, the more that we could be ready. We don't have to use these things. Uh, we can actually take much more control. Have you been to a troll farm? Like, have you ever like seen that underbelly gone into that world? Uh, I have not been inside of a troll farm. I've studied troll farms. I wrote a paper for the Department of Defense many years ago, uh, ironically, about how all of these things could be used for good <laughs> and how we could uh, how we could create a stronger democracy and 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 engage a much more involved uh, citizenship. For example, um, if you just look at the, the levels of voter rates, they're, they're abysmal. Uh, but the whole idea was that you could take these types of farms and use them for good to spread awareness around the key issues that people care about and, and sort of sort of represent the MTV of our generation of the rock the vote movement of bringing people together around those important issues and getting them to participate in the democracy. Uh, instead, th- these troll farms, uh, and, and by the way, they're, they're both electronic and they're also human, show us everything that's wrong with technology and then also show us everything that's wrong with us. One, that we're able to believe it. Two, that some people are actually employing these things. But three, even some of our kids are using, let's just say, different types of farms to buy more followers and to buy more likes so that they can show to their friends that they're much more popular. So this whole this whole thing is so deep-rooted in sociology and anthropology and psychology that I think we got too far, too fast 
uh, and we haven't taken enough steps even to recognize the problem, let alone kind of thinking about the future of it. What what surprises you most? Like if you think back to, you know, when we were at all the early conferences and everyone was excited about the democratizing potential of, uh, um, you know, basically the, the collapse of the gatekeepers and the ability to uh, communicate directly. And we even talked about social antibodies, this idea that people would weed out uh, you know, misinformation and the truth would, would prevail. What surprises you most about where we are today? I remember once describing Twitter in the very, very early days, I think it was 2006 or 2007, as what I called the human seismograph. It was sort of this digital representation of the things that moved us and that they happened instantly. Uh, I, I think I said once that news no longer breaks, it tweets. And that level of of optimism that we all had uh, when where I was studying it as a digital anthropologist, I think didn't allow me and 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 for other various experiences that people have didn't allow others to see that underneath it all was sort of this intoxication of exactly what was being programmed for us to use it, which was uh, you know, popularity, uh, engagement, uh, semblances of of validation and 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 love and support and agreement and community and friendships and so it it sort of nurtured nurtured us on this path that's in i hate to dumb it down this way but it's not unlike what happens to a celebrity overnight right if you if you look at all of these pop stars or rock stars that get instant fame a lot of them have a hard time dealing with it uh they go to drugs they fall apart they lose all their money uh it's because we don't have necessarily a training or regiment or you know parenting or or schooling that kind of say hey in case you ever get all of this attention and fame this is how you handle it Um, so i think in many ways we just kind of got to see the worst side of ourselves of what happens when you get all of this stuff thrust upon you uh and we also started to get uh, reprogrammed in a way, and I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound like, hey, we're being reprogrammed and put a tinfoil hat on. Uh, I mean, reprogram like from a neuroplasticity standpoint, right? So the more that you grab this and the more that you're doing this and the more that you're doing this and the more tabs that you have open, uh, the more that you're, you're, you're learning to do all of these things all the time. And some call it multitasking, but essentially what's, what's happening, it's task switching. Uh, and so that, expends neurochemicals as you move from one thing to another. Uh, it, it fills your body with all kinds of different things like serotonin or oxytocin or, or dopamine uh, as you're jumping to it. And so your body kind of learns how to crave that and your, your brain literally rewires itself as, you, as this becomes your new norm. So in the, let's just take, let's just give it the benefit of the doubt that a lot of us jumped into this in 2006, right? That's, that's, that's a 14, 15 years of slow but gradual change. Uh, and so now we're waking up to the 2016 election. Now we're waking up to the 2020 election. Now we're waking up to troll farms and all of these things that on the surface sound bad and they are bad, but in many ways we sort of allowed it to happen from that slow trickle effect, that slow eventual movement where we were part of the problem that we just let it happen. Uh, and also we sort of enjoyed it along the way. I remember, you know, when I was in college, actually enjoying research. I mean, I, I, the idea of finding something on microfiche from a 1920s <laughs> newspaper, I felt like I was discovering something and there was effort involved. And it, it was exciting for me as a student. 
I was talking to my nephew's girlfriend um, over the holidays and, and I said, you know, gosh, it's so easy for you guys today. I mean, I used to have to, you know, get the microfiche and now you just go to Google. And she said to me, she said, you know, yeah, but there's so much information out there and most of it's not credible. So, you know, you were able to get the microfiche. At least there was some sort of journalistic filter that told you it was credible. Now we have to figure out what's credible ourselves. And, and, and also, you know, the, the broadcast news media is not impervious to what, you know, the, the social mm-hmm. networks have learned. They're doing the same thing to boost their ratings and their advertising rate. So, you know, we're sort of living in this post-truth age where finding credible sources is like finding a needle in a haystack. So on, on a much more practical level for, you know, the, the public relations and corporate communications people who are on this call, what risks and opportunities does this environment create for corporate communicators and public relations professionals? You have a couple different sides to that conversation that I'd love to explore. Let's look at Brad Pascal for a moment. He's the one heading up, for the most part, the digital communication strategy and the digital advertising and marketing strategy for for Trump. Uh, and I, th- I always say that if you want if you want to learn how to micro target people um, in ways that are good, uh, you could learn a lot from Brad and, and Trump. They've they've absolutely mastered social media. I've, I've written, I used to call it the interest graph back in the day. I've written research about how to positively connect and deliver value to people because you can, you can learn and reach them in so many personal ways. Uh, So to that point, what's happening today is that there is not just an erosion of truth. There's actually uh, a delineation of what, truth actually means and i think that's the scariest part about it is that we're seeing your truth and my truth we're seeing journalists absolutely shredded uh because they're trying to tell the story in the way that a journalist tells a story and very powerful people who don't like those stories discredit it and over time it's it it it, you start to question it that is teaching people that there's money and attention in that chaos. And so they're taking this playbook and they're sowing that chaos across the board because it reaps great rewards, at least for right now. Uh, and that's what I worry about. And I, I know many people, including myself. What's an example myself, of that? I just want to make sure I understand. What's an example of that? Okay. So, for example, uh, there's a really wonderful profile. I can't remember who wrote it, but I'm sure you can uh, Google it uh, around fake news sites and how this particular fake news uh, baron, digital baron, if you will, was tracked down to Southern Cali- his Southern California home. Uh, he wanted to find out about uh, this reporter wanted to find out about the origin story of essentially one of the, the most uh, pivotal disinformation stories that led to a lot of people believing that uh the, de- the Democrats and Hillary Clinton in, in particular were uh, in, in, in cahoots over a lot of stuff and emails and servers, et cetera. And so this particular story uh, that ran had, I can't even remember how many millions and millions and millions of views and shares. And they ended up tracing this down to this particular individual who owns a ton of fake news sites where they are full blown 
they resemble news organizations. There's stories there, and those those sites run ads. Uh, and the more that they can get attention around those stories, the more ad revenue that they generate. And in for the most part, even though there are algorithms to kind of see what's real, what isn't real, you know, to make sure that ad dollars aren't going there, like Google, for example, there are many media networks that that aren't as sophisticated and they want to make their money. So they'll, they'll plug into those ad networks as well. So the more sensational the, the story, the, the chances are the more it's going to stoke cognitive biases in social media to get that story shared. And there was a line in there. Uh, the reporter asked, you know, how come all of these stories, because the, the, it was, what was revealed was that this, this individual is actually a Democrat uh, and, uh, kind of right there in the center. Yes, why? Why were all the stories aimed to the right? And he said, it, "He's like, he's a, look, I'm in the I'm in this to make money. Uh, and the truth is, is that I can't get the left to click the same way I can get the right to click. And so, what he was doing was sort of channeling into those those cognitive biases and vulnerabilities, much like we're seeing algorithms doing, uh, and, and essentially monetizing that. So that's just one of the many different things. And so if you think about brands or communication platforms or politicians, that's they're plugging into the same emotion to kind of stoke and agitate that that engagement because there's money in it. There's return on it. Uh, and, you know, just a last note. So we talk about in the tech world ethics in AI. And this is one of those cases where you could argue that we're being unethical about how we're finding and sharing stories, especially stories that if you really want to tweak the algorithms, you can kind of quickly disprove that they're actually factual uh, or right uh, and maybe even harmful. Well, not maybe, definitely harmful. Uh, but now we're also talking about ethics and human communication, right? So to communicators whom we're seeing right now, justify this type of engagement right in broad daylight it sets a new standard so there's no i don't think as much as you know eric you and i agree on all these things i think now it's as much as you and i agree on these things and these people agree on these things and they're going to go do it their way there's no logic uh, and rationale have simply have been divided or or more so uh personalized so that people feel justified in what they do whether you and i see that as right or wrong and I guess at the same time, there seems to be less tolerance for alternate points of view. <laughs> I laugh because it hurts. Uh, this, I think what technology has done is it's shown us the promise, but it's also sown so much discord because it, everything about it, I call it uh, accidental narcissism. But that was just my nice way of essentially saying that everything we do online reinforces our beliefs and there is no other point of view in that regard. There's no need to see or hear other points of view when you're constantly lauded with attention and validation and reinforcement that trains and rewires every aspect of not only how you think, but how you communicate and how you move on. And, you know, you, you and I remember the days of when, you couldn't say anything negative about someone without using an anonymous handle online. And now you're just in plain view. People are calling out other people for things that just are disgusting. I think things that in, for the most part, you still wouldn't say to real people in the real world. Uh, and when you do, thankfully there's a cell phone to capture it and you get a nickname, 
but our our online behavior is just disgusting and it is in 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 those people who are actually the ones that we might call disgusting and how they behave online would never see it that way but i guess what's ni- what is kind of nice what you said earlier you know this idea that you know the the uh, algorithms are responding and giving us more of what we put out there and so i thought you know if you want more love on facebook i guess you put out more love on facebook and that right. I, I never thought of that before that's really quite wise Look at, at the end of the day, I I, I called it. I mean, th- look, this is this is all all of my early work. I mean, if you wanted to Google it, I talked about the human operating system, the human algorithm. I talked about how we, as human beings, at the end of the day, it's human beings on the other side of these connections. We control those algorithms if we want it. Instead, we've sort of become controlled by those algorithms but it really is that simple i mean picture picture the matrix uh, you know, if you if you, <laughs> the third installment if you actually liked it uh, i liked it uh, you think about the rebooting sequence that happens towards the end of the movie where you're essentially uh, to visualize it uh, it's not this clean in the movie but you unplug the bad you plug in the good and it resets the system to make that the center and that's a, that's that's a choice we have to make. We have a choice in who we want to follow, who we don't want to follow, what we want to share, and what we want to get back. And we nurture those relationships like we would in the real world to give and get. That's what the definition of a relationship is. It's mutual, beneficial value in being connected. That we're so caught up in all of this stuff that we feel like we can't unplug. So you get these extremes like, oh, we'll delete Facebook or delete delete your accounts, uh, delete the apps. And certainly that's one way to do it, but we live in a society where if you're disconnected, you're disconnected, and that could be good and that could be bad. But at the end of the day, there are good things happening in this world. We just have to find them and plug in them and share them. And if you don't get a 1,000 likes because of it, then so be it. Take the likes you get because those are the likes that matter. Those are the connections that matter and build from there. That's, that's what I'm learning how to do. I've been relentlessly taking out the negative of my life because it has influenced my life. It's made me shorter and my temperament has changed. And I just, I'm impatient. Uh, I've, I've had to take control of this because I see it affecting me. And once you see it affect you, Eric, once you start to pay attention to what's happening to you and how you act around other people and what you share and what you don't share, you can't unsee it. And then once you can't unsee it, you can't change fast enough. Common sense author Thomas Paine wrote, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. And innovation is all about change. You know, things are always changing. How can we help organizations shift from rigid processes and risk-averse cultures to agile, high-performance cultures of innovation? Man, got to use the clutch on a, on a question shift like that. <laughs> wow, that's a big, big, big... Dude, big I've question. only got 14 minutes, baby. I got to get right into it. All right. Okay. This this is a really important conversation. I'm doing a lot of uh, really cool work with Jason Corman. He's the CEO of Gaping Void, and Gaping Void you might know from the uh, incredible artwork of uh, Huma Cloud. Um, Jason has been cracking the code literally on corporate culture. 
Uh, and he's used neuroscience, behavior science, management science, uh, even marketing science, um, which has been really interesting to show that in any conversation about whether it's innovation, right, agility, uh, whether it's digital transformation, uh, whether it's things like diversity and inclusion uh, or learning and development, these are big change initiatives because they change how people think and how people work. Uh, they're all absolutely related to culture. Change and culture go hand in hand because that's essentially what we're talking about, whether it's innovation or, or DNI, it's about change. Uh, and change is about people and culture is what brings people together and gives them the why and where we're going together. Uh, so it actually becomes a leadership conversation around culture and how do we bring people together and why do we bring people together to get them incentivized and motivated to move in a new direction. In many cases, right, when it does come down to people, we all know change is hard, but we all, we also are very self-interested. What's in it for me to do these things? Even if it's in your best interest, you might still question what's in it for me. So how do we do these things? Well, we have to take a step back and realize that innovation isn't actually the effort we're, we're putting in. Innovation is actually the outcome that we want. And it's change and culture uh, design that get us to those outcomes. And I'll, I'll take a quick break because I know we don't have a lot of time. So that way you can kind of process that and ask, ask your next question. Um, let, let's move into, uh, into customer experience. Okay. So, you know, everyone is talking about, you know, providing a seamless customer experience, you know, that, or that people don't want to be, uh, um, glad handled and moved, you know, from department to department. They just want one experience with an organization. And so you have so many companies out there talking about this idea of a seamless customer experience for connected consumers. What types of companies do you see as most can most committed to customer satisfaction? Oh, that's a hard that's a hard one, Eric, and 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 not not because it isn't it isn't so pervasive. I mean, there's a lot of answers. If you look at, uh, your customer, you know, customer care, like at, at, at Nordstrom, um, you know, or these traditional companies that were like USAA that really care about their, their members. Uh, you also have though, this digital native company that's coming up that understands the differences and the nuances between what a connected customer values, uh, and a traditional customer values, right? I think what they all share is they want great service. They want, uh, the semblance of personalization. Uh, they want to feel appreciated. Uh, what changes with connected customers is sort of everything we've been talking about is sort of like, like your, your mental model, uh, your emotional needs, your emotional state in the connected world. When you go through the customer journey, it's actually very chaotic because it's so dynamic. It's full of a million different pieces. You don't know which pieces are good, which pieces of trust. You don't know which reviews or experiences to trust. There's a million different videos. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to go through. And so people connected consumers will say in the journey that they actually feel stressed uh, as they go through it. And that brands are not actually delivering much more intuitive or seamless or value add or, or, uh, intuitive customer experiences in each of those quick moments. Uh, so customer experience is everything, uh, but I like to talk about it from the perspective of the customer. So I, when I talk about customer experience, I call it the customer's experience. And I add an apostrophe S in there because it changes the dynamic of the conversation. Because what's happening today is you have a lot of really amazing brands uh, who really care about customers, 
but their actions don't show it in the digital realm as, as much as you'd imagine, right? I mean, just think about calling any company for customer service and you have to get through an IVR system where you get frustrated because you just want to talk to a human being. And when you talk to a human being, it's like, oh my gosh, their metric is how quickly can they get you off the phone? So we have to just change everything to the customer's experience. What do they value? What do they want? What are they trying to do? What would they deem as valuable? Uh, and then design the journey and, and more importantly, each touch point to be much more productive for them. And that changes everything because if you go through the journey just specifically on a mobile phone, which 90% of journeys start that way, you'll see that it's just a mix of old and new uh, and wannabe cool uh, chatbots, et cetera, not taking into account sort of the humanity of how someone feels and what someone's trying to do in each touch point. So, what I what I'm seeing, what I would suggest is that you know, growth oriented companies, companies you know, particularly network effect growth oriented companies, um, you know, who serve, who are looking to dominate in a winner take winner takes all or winner takes most market, you know, these these growth organizations that put acquisition before efficiency despite uncertainty. Um, or user acquisition before efficiency despite uncertainty, usually provide access to live customer service reps to resolve issues that fall outside the standard buckets of their UI. But as they grow and they achieve mass market penetration, it tends to get tougher, you know, to talk to reps as a way of controlling costs. They they try to get the reps to process calls quicker and it essentially frustrates the customer experience, particularly, um, you know, if you're the only game in town. So, like, I, I bought on Black Friday a new iPad. Um, I bought the Apple Care through Amazon. Um, it sold me two Apple Cares. It said two units. I figured that was two years. You know, everything else on on Amazon you can return, but there's no option for that on on app with the Apple Care and. There's no way to really do anything about it, so I imagine I'm going to eat the, the the four years of Apple Care for a device that's got <laughs> an 18 month lifespan. Um, but could it be that you know customer experience is really just a growth marketing strategy? No, no, not at all. Customer experience is literally their, the, the the customers. They own it, right? That at the end of the day. That's the difference. The customer experience is marketing. Customer experience is the experience people have and share. Uh, this is why we have to switch from things like Net Promoter Score and growth uh, to things like CLV uh, and sentiment. Because CLV, yeah, customer lifetime value. Uh, because right now, the the the, mo- the core amount of your customers are your most profitable. Uh, we also know that when you lose a customer, it's more expensive to acquire a new one than it is to keep them. Uh, and yet when we focus on growth at all costs, we forget about that CLV and we forget about that sentiment and growing sort of the, the scaling the, the, the margins of existing customers by delivering them but, better but services once and products. that headroom for additional user acquisition is pretty much gone because you own the market, what's, what's the motivation at that point? You know, I mean, what, what's the motivation yeah. for Amazon to provide support in this type of environment that falls outside there? UI buckets of yeah. Well, in in your case around the Apple Care, that's 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 certainly interesting. But if you, I've had I've had issues with Amazon where I've gotten Amazon to call me within minutes uh, when I chat with somebody uh, just because they want to they want to make it right. Uh, certainly an extra expense that they didn't have to do and probably a low margin deal. But 
certainly keeps my affinity and my loyalty going and come back and spend more money with Amazon. And I think that's really what it's about. It's the heart of the matter. Customer experience is the sum of uh, all of the experiences a customer has with your business, not just in one moment, but all of the moments. And that, if you think about it, the word experience is essentially an emotional reaction to a moment. And how those add up is how you feel about a particular company over time and how you feel. This is what's so important. This is why I study the emotions of brand engagement and customer experience is because emotions translate into memories and memories become the brand, whether it sucks or whether it's great. You're going to always remember that anything in between that is forgettable and not worth anything. And that is why when I wrote uh, the my last book, X, uh, The Experience When Business Meets Design, it was all about how do you design customer experiences that are evocative and memorable at every step of the way. And that starts at sales and, and through customer service and also through loyalty programs. So um, really quick, because we just have five minutes left and there's a couple more things I do want to cover. Plus, I want to give you a chance to talk about the life scale. Um, you know, you spent so much time in the Valley working um, with companies that are very progressive and growth oriented and who have become dominant in their markets in a matter of years by, uh, you know, blitzscaling or, or whatever, I guess, uh, verb you want to use to get there. Um, what's the reason why innovation fails and, and what do Silicon Valley disruptors do that others don't? Mm. Innovation fails because it's supposed to fail. Uh, it's just what you do with that failure that defines the extent of the innovation. Um, the Silicon Valley embraces that as a model. It's why so many companies burn through funding because they're building markets and they're testing and learning as they go. And then they pivot because they learn uh, or they or they just plug into, you know, the next growth curve, uh, what, what they call jumping the curve. Uh, the reason it's different here is because this is the culture of Silicon Valley trial and error or failure are part of the norms and norms dictate the behaviors and those behaviors sort of dictate the outcomes. And when you have those norms, that's what you're funding as an investor. So you know that you're going to have someone who's going to seek that out and you're buying that idea, but you're also buying into that ambition to be successful. Innovation also fails because we don't give it that, that we don't give it that room to grow, that we don't give people the ability to stretch their minds and constantly learn and constantly test and constantly stumble, uh, or that we don't encourage them to get back up, that we don't incentivize or, or motivate those types of behaviors. So when we tell somebody to innovate, we're, we're basically just saying, hey, why don't you do the same things but better? And that's not innovation, that's iteration, that's incremental improvement, whereas innovation is introducing new value. It's totally a mindset, and it's, a, it's, it's supported by a culture. Uh, the thing that I find most fascinating about it, though, is that in, in Silicon Valley over the last few years with Ubers and Airbnbs of the world, uh, WeWorks of the world, we've seen growth at all costs as sort of the, the, the drive to innovation. And that leads led to tremendous uh, transformation of many industries and the success of many companies. But we also see tremendous losses still taking place here because they're still trying to apply those models now at a time where maybe they have to shift to margin. 
How do we build better customer relationships? How do we make those relationships much more profitable? How do we look beyond our current models in order to, to, to apply those relationships in new ways so that they're more profitable? So that, I think, is going to be the next, the next generation of innovation in Silicon Valley is looking at not only hyper growth, but also uh, creating longer, sustainable businesses that maybe they acquire and plug into something else, or maybe they just go and create a whole new market. But the growth at all costs market uh, innovation era, I think, is coming to an end. So, um, you know, you wrote seven bestsellers before writing LifeScale. And, uh, you know, we're living at this, this, this time when digital notifications are hitting us from all sides. You know, they're coming from productivity apps. They're coming from social media. Uh, you know, they're coming from texts, SMS. Um, what's the impact of all these notifications on our ability to think at a deep level? And also what's the human cost of, you know, being in this environment where you're constantly responding to notifications? Well, boy, there's a lot of cost that we don't realize. It it comes in productivity, creativity, self-esteem, confidence, capability, ideation, imagination, uh, patience, uh, comes to the cost of our relationships because we're not necessarily fully involved or fully immersed in those moments and to make it the best of everyone involved. So many, so many things to unpack with that question, but I will say that it's none of it's good if left unchecked. And I don't want to make anyone feel to blame for how they might have a relationship with their devices or the technology or social media. It's just sort of the net result of how those things were designed and how we use them over time. But I will say this though, that, your work goes down, the quality of your work goes down, your communication skills actually don't, they don't get any better. Uh, how we view relationships change, how our brain works and thinks changes. Um, in fact, you know, the life scale journey became my way of trying to fix my own life uh, and not finding solutions out there beyond things like meditation or yoga or uh, taking a walk in the woods or going to Burning Man or deleting apps or trying Calm or uh, certain other productivity apps. Those things are all helpful, but really what you had to do is kind of get to the core of what changed us and then where do we want to go and then do those things intentionally to get there. And that that requires building new habits, that requires building new mindsets, that actually requires us getting back to sort of our sense of values and purpose and re-going re through those exercises in this, in this new world. Uh, and that the life scale journey was sort of the result of my own personal journey to fix my life. Uh, still, I still read the book all the time because it's, I'm still using technology and I want to always stay intentional and stay on course. Uh, I, the book is, is that journey, but I also have my own personal life scale journey because that journey is going to be different for everybody. But I also want to encourage if you're watching this and you have a team of people, uh, or if you're watching this and you're responsible for marketing too, or responsible for the experiences of customers. I want you to use this book and give it to all of your employees to not only get them to see and think differently about their own lives, but give them that empathy to think differently about what it means to be an employee with all of these distractions. Cause you lose probably on average two hours a, a day at work or in potential work output. Uh, customers, feel that stress and that anxiety because of the relationship with their devices and it's unsaid or it's un, unrecognized, but it affects how they shop. Uh, it affects how they make decisions. So 
giving employees and strategists and executives sort of this understanding of how we're changing as a result of this and how we get back on course. It's the same. You could take life scale and apply it to employee experience. You could take life scale and apply it to customer experience. And that's sort of the next generation where I'm taking the narrative of the book now is actually trying to bring it into businesses so we can scale this story. So it's not just about individual transformation, but it's actually just putting people back at the center. Brian, um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. The book is Life Scale. It is a terrific book about uh, taking your eyes off of your feet and looking at the horizon. And uh, yeah, can you can you give us a can you bring it closer so we can see it? Just hold it stable for a sec because it's a little blurry. Great, perfect. Available uh, wherever fine books are sold. Brian, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, everybody. If we you will need anything, s- at Brian Solis uh, or Brian at BrianSolis.com. Great. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>